Welcome to Building with Brick, Foundational Wisdom on Coaching, Careers, and Christ. This leadership podcast was spawned by Coach Brickner's book, So You Want to Be a Coach, which is the story of a corporate executive who made a drastic career change and became a head men's basketball coach. Dr. Brickner's book is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook on Amazon.com or go to his website, www.drjoebrickner.com. That's drjoebrickner.com. Now, here's this week's podcast. Welcome back, folks, to Building with Brick, Foundational Wisdom and Coaching, Careers in Christ. And we've got a great guest with us this week, Bill O'Connor, Hall of Fame coach, all-time winningest coach at Rockhurst University. And I wanted to visit with Bill this time about going to Rockhurst. He left Pan American as an assistant coach, as a Division One, came back and took his first four-year college head coaching position, and it was at a, a tremendous school. They won the 64 National Championship, had a great run year after year, and Billy takes them over. I think it was like 1994, maybe? That's right. It was 94. Tell us about going from, you were head coach in high school, head coach in junior college, now you're a four-year head coach. How was that? Well, Rockhurst obviously uh, had, was an NAI school at the time. And when I was hired, had been told that we were going to make the transition to go Division II. Mm. What, that made, what that meant, and I'm not, there's no excuse to it, it meant that the job would become incrementally harder. Because at the NAI level, you could play 30, 32 games. Uh, we would have Rockhurst uh, had a history of having 10 or 11 full scholarships. We could pick our own schedule and possibly play out of 32. We might play 18 games at home, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. Uh, well, the move to D2 was going to change that. Uh, the number of games would be reduced. You better get into a league or you're not going to survive. And the number of scholarships would go down. So it was going to become incrementally harder as we went along. Having said that, I'd worked at Rockers as an assistant, loved the place, and really looked forward to getting a chance to be the head coach. And in 1994, uh, they were good enough to give me the job, and we jumped right into it. We were, in no, we were not in any league. We had uh, three seniors and no juniors. Uh, of the three seniors, two of them were hurt and one played. So we basically had one upperclassman, four sophomores, and four or five freshmen. And went out and played uh, and struggled. But I will tell you, Joe, what I found most, uh, one of the best rewarding events. We went, uh, our second year, we improved our record by 11 games. And that is a huge jump. And uh, I think we finished, we went to that year, we went 15 and 16, uh, which doesn't sound like anything. But when that means you improve by 11 games, you can tell how tough that first year was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Having said that, without, without anybody in the upper classes, we took the approach that we were going to start freshmen and sophomores and play into it. And within four years, we 
we were an NAI tournament contending team. And uh, within four years, we were winning tournaments at Mesa State and other places. So we got pretty good pretty quick. And, but that part of that was we brought in a good freshman class and they played for four years. And when they were seniors, we were pretty good. So uh, getting the job was tremendous. It was exciting. Uh, it was daunting. It was everything you could imagine, but I loved every part of it. And I did stay doing it, doing it at Rockers for 21 years. How did you recruit to Rockers? Was it different than you had been recruiting, obviously, to the junior college? And what was your big selling point for Rockhurst? Uh, my guess is it's the education. Without a doubt. The, the number one thing, you, when you sat down with mom and dad or in the living room or kitchen table, wherever it was, is you'd, you'd establish that fact is, what do you want for your son uh, academically? You'd let them say what they wanted. And then you were able to easily follow up and go, good, I'm glad to hear that. Because here's where we come from. And you could lay it out and... When you're selling a product that you actually believe in, mm -hmm. your chances of success are tremendously higher. Rockers is a tremendous education. And the fact that we played ultimately going into the uh, NCAA D2 level, but an NAI level, NCAA D2 level team located in Kansas City, Missouri, and all the business opportunities that could come with that made the recruiting a little bit simpler. Uh, you just had to go make sure you recruit the right level of player. That was important. So a combination of academic excellence and athletic excellence. And if you hit, a, hit the right people, you have a chance to be pretty darn good. How did you sell the player? I mean, I was always good at selling the, the parents. I could, I could recruit any parent. Unfortunately, they couldn't play, you know, but, <laughs> <laughs> but selling the kid on coming to Rockhurst and, and if you were going to Division II NCAA, I'm sure that is something that, that was to your benefit. But everybody that's been to Rockhurst knows that the facility is not much to look at, you know. And how, how did you maneuver your way around that with your recruits? Well, it's a couple of things. Um, and this, is a, this might be a lesson for younger coaches or whatever. And uh, you might listen to this advice and do exactly the opposite. But I've always said that sometimes it's great to have the ability to uh, not be able to perceive the obvious. I looked at uh, Mason Halpin and I saw a place where everybody was within 12 feet of the, of the floor. And you could reach out and touch the players. And when we, and I, and I would tell recruits, if you can't shoot in this gym, you can't shoot. There's something wrong with you. You can't do it. <laughs> It was a great Shears gym. And again, the fans were close. It was old, antiquated, whatever words you want to make by it. And, and I am sure people would recruit against it. But if you got in there and played and you got a chance to get in there and get that going, I just didn't think we lost too many guys because of the gym. Really? We might have lost them for a lot of other reasons, but I don't think the gym was one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you got 1,200 people in there, on the rare occasion when we'd pack it, I'm telling you, Joe, it was, it was an event. It was amazing because you cannot believe how loud a place can get oh, when, amazing, yeah. when it's going that way. And uh, so uh, I had no uh, qualms about Mason Hoffman at all. But it, it, I am sure that the Washburns, Central Missouri's, 
and uh, Drury's of the world did recruit against us using saying, hey, you're going to play in some old barn. What type of crowds did you have? Because when, when I went back into, well, when I went into coaching, it was 1998. Coming from, in my mind, thinking about the crowds that were in our gym when we played, I mean, the place was nuts. If you weren't there by halftime of the JV game, you didn't get in. I mean, it was crazy. When I came back to Benedictine in 98, I mean, we had more players on the bench than we had people in the stands. I mean, it was just terrible. Students didn't show up. How, how was that, that with you? That was very similar because what we were finding out was that that was probably one of those sociologists or people later will come out and say, you know, the opportunity for kids and what they had to do besides just support their team. If, every, if, if all of our teams were on 20-game win streaks, you'd have great crowds. Mm-hmm. But to get people to come over at 6 or 7 o'clock and be part of that atmosphere, kids had changed. I do think that part of it was the internet. I do think that the opportunity to do other things and, uh, and all the opportunities uh, socially that came about made it much more difficult. And trust me, I went to fraternities. I went to, you know, I knocked on doors and came in and talked to people. I can't tell you the number of kids teams we brought in to play at halftime because they bring two parents and probably two grandparents, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I say that with the fact that here's the sad point. A lot of people fail to see great level of basketball because they didn't show up. We, some of the games, whether it be Benedict's and Rockhurst or whether it be Benedict's Washburn uh, or whether it was Rockers, Drury, Rockers, Washburn, Fort Hayes. They'd come in. We might have 250 people at the game and see a game that ended up 98-92 and was just a tremendous basketball game with tremendous players. And a lot of people had no clue that the level was that good. And so to answer your question in a roundabout way, attendance has been a problem since oh, probably 1990 on. And it's still today is a problem. Mm-hmm. You go back, whether wherever you go, a lot of the smaller colleges and smaller schools have great difficulty. I do suggest, Joe, that that's happening at the Division I level also. We just don't see it as much. But if you look on TV, there are some nights you'd be shocked. It has nothing to do with the virus. It's just the fact that interest and other things have taken the place of, uh, of the spectator. Well, one thing now that is is available that wasn't when we were playing way back when and filling the place is ESPN. I mean, if you want to watch a, a basketball game, you can watch a basketball game every day, every night, and it's top level, and it's going to be entertaining, and, and you don't have to leave your dorm room. <laughs> You're just right there. I think that has a lot to do with why nobody comes to the normal games. And and the sad thing about it, Bill, is when you do go to the normal games on your campus, it is so much fun. If you get into it and you start cheering and screaming and hollering and everything with your friends, and it is so much fun. But it's been lost, I think, on, on everybody except those that normally show up, the television networks, you know, that are, that are filling the place. Well, I'll tell you, to support your point, we did have years where we had great, we had very solid student interest because we were good. And the students then would start to show up and they would fill in one end of Mason Health. Mm-hmm. 
and we get that one in full, don't let anybody tell you players don't respond to that because they do. Players respond to that emotion and it raises their game. So when it was really rolling like that, we'd have great student participation. It was tremendous. Now it was fleeting. Uh, the next year, we might not get that same mm-hmm. type of following. Mm-hmm. So it was a constant battle to kind of evolve. And the best way to do it was to have good teams. And uh, you don't always, the level you're playing, it's, it was very difficult to sustain excellence year in and year out and, and everything that went with that. So the challenge of getting the college student to come over is a big challenge for a lot of schools today. Mm-hmm. Bill, in my book, I, in, in the book is called So You Want to Be a Coach, and it was uh, basically describing how I went from being a corporate executive to being a head basketball coach. Big, big change. But one of, one of the things that I used to use in business was the, what I called the 3F model for success. And I transitioned that right into my coaching philosophy when I got to college. And the 3F model was our faith, family, and fitness in that order. And the, the faith part is, is obvious, you know, God's number one, they, God should be number one on, on everything you do, family's next. And then fitness was, I broke it down between spiritual, mental, and physical, were the, the three pieces of the fitness. And then I gave you a formula on what you should do in order to be successful in each one of those. And so I took that from my business background and then brought it into, uh, it, it was the first thing that we talked about to every recruit. It was the first thing we talked about to the family, and, and we kept it in front of them all the time. What's your take on trying to de- develop the whole player, not just as a basketball player, but as, as an individual, spiritually, uh, mentally, and physically? Well, first and foremost, let's, let's kind of uh, start with the idea of faith. I, uh, I think when you start talking about faith, family, and fitness, that you're spot on. I'm speaking very personally here about the idea of how important faith is. I just believe you can't exist without it. I think that if you don't have that, I just feel so sad about how unhappy you're probably going to be. So a concept of believing in God. Uh, and, you know, I go say, you know, someone says, well, I don't believe in God. Well, there's a, you have a faith in something, in a creator or whatever, and I won't get long-winded on it. But I do believe you need to have a strong sense of faith, because without it, I just think you're uh, aimless is a, a word that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so I believe strongly in faith. Family, obviously, is tremendously important. I've been blessed. We had four kids. My wife, Elaine, and put up with me coaching and all the moves that go with coaching, and all the things that go that way. But they were tremendously supportive. On the fitness level, it's funny. My phrase would have been, as you said, you did it. I would pray that I could be self-actualized spiritually, mentally, and physically. Oh. Those are my three categories, but I use self-actualization in front of it. So yeah. it's a, yeah. you know, six of one, half dozen of another. But I do believe that's critically important. I would tell you that if you're feeling better, you'll probably think better. If you're thinking better, you know, you'll probably function better. So all these things kind of are interwoven, and but bringing that, uh, putting that on the table, when you deal with a young student athlete, you're not just a, a basketball coach. You, you're coaching him in a sport, but you've promised he and his family 
that if he wants to pursue a degree here, that in eight or 10 semesters, he's going to graduate with a degree and hopefully be a functioning young adult. All the things that school and athletics and being involved in school and athletics involve, there's a maturing process in there. But as the coach, you're part of that. I do believe that that player needs to know that you care for them. We didn't all get along on every issue, but I would tell you that overwhelmingly they knew I cared for them. And I think that's critical. I think uh, when I went back and told you about Coach Nickel, one of the first things that I really believed is that I knew he cared. And he cared for me and the other players. Mm -hmm. And I think we responded because of that. So putting all those things together, when you sign someone to a four-year or one-year scholarship, that's more than just an athletic ride. There's a commitment by yourself and by your school to that individual and to their family. Not all roads are going to be perfectly smooth. There's going to be bumps in it. But as long as uh, they know that I care for them, they'll care back. And uh, I think that'll, that's the start of a real solid relationship. Mm -hmm. Rockhurst is a Catholic school, as, as Benedictine was when I was coaching. It still is. <laughs> um, <laughs> I couldn't recruit all Catholic kids. And I'm, I'm sure you couldn't either. I mean, we could have, but the talent level that we would have gotten would have been less than what we got the other way. How did you approach that issue, especially with, probably especially with parents, because kids may not be as concerned about coming in and it's a Catholic school, you know, do I have to do, do I have to go to mass every morning, you know, and all that? How'd you, how'd you deal with that? Well, if, uh, if you were Catholic and we were on the road, and we played, sometimes we didn't have a chaplain with us. And so we always had the opportunity to have a Saturday evening or Sunday morning mass. And if you were Catholic, you were invited to be there. It's part of it. Uh, if you were non-Catholic, you were invited, but you were not required. We did not require that. We respected the religious feelings of, of our student athletes. So we always provide the opportunity, Joe, but we did not require that it was a mandatory situation. There were years we would start our year with a prayer service. It was nothing about X's and O's. It was just about coming together as a team and saying a prayer that we would, that year, uh, we would realize that play to our best of our ability, pray that no one got hurt, also to be uh, grateful to show gratitude for the opportunity that we had for this year. And we would start years that way. Again, that would be Catholics and non-Catholics in there. But if it was mass or anything like that, we didn't require that you had to be there at all. Kind of switching gears a little bit, you had mentioned your wife Elaine earlier and your four children. One of the things that I do talk about in my book is also the sacrifice that a wife has to make when yeah. she's married to a coach. Can you share some of that, uh, what Elaine had to go through? Maybe she'll come in and tell us <laughs> what she had to go through. <laughs> we might want uh, to shut that mic down here real quick. Uh, no, on all serious nature. We moved, I think, six or seven times. And we had four children. And when you move six or seven times and you've got four children, Elaine was the one that was making sure that schools and arrangements and the moves and houses being purchased and houses being sold and all the processes that went along with that as I was involved with getting to the new spot establishing 
the job and doing whatever. So it's, uh, it's not easy. Plus recruiting, you're out on the road recruiting, uh, scouting, uh, games, coming in at 2.30 in the morning because you know, the, the bus got back at two o'clock. All that's part of it. You went through it. You know what I'm talking about. But that doesn't make any easier for your wife or your kids. So when you look at it from that way, the sacrifice on their part is tremendous. Like you said, I did this for 40-something plus years. We're still all together, and uh, we got four great kids and four great kin- grandkids. And so in many regards, I think we should just be grateful for that. And uh, I am grateful for the sacrifices that had to be made by my wife and my family. My hat's off to a coach's wife, and <laughs> yeah. it's, it's especially at the college level or even the pro level. I mean, because you're going so much. High school's bad enough. There are a bunch of saints out there, that, and it's not the coach that's the saint. <laughs> <laughs> well, Billy, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, any career regrets you may have had. And uh, then looking for some advice that you would give to young coaches on just how to, to move forward in their career and, and uh, be happy. That'd be good. That'd All be right? good. All right. 